This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm, I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. The show's about you, and we're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. If you're new to the show, but you wanna know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, especially in our live programs, check out The Art of Charm Toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. There we teach dating, attraction, body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, breakups, relationship management, networking, a lot of the stuff that people overlook, and we've got our live programs running every week here in Los Angeles, California. Details at bootcamps.theartofcharm.com. Notice there's two dots in there, or give us a call here in the office, 888-413-7177, or you can even email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. I do read everything, and bear in mind, for the boot camps, we're sold out at least five months in advance. Sometimes we can squeeze people in, but don't be that guy who calls me in November and says, hey man, I wanna come in in three weeks because that is a pain in my you-know-what. But I do look forward to meeting all of you guys here at The Art of Charm. And of course, today, we've got my friend Andrew Hallam. He's a school teacher, literally, who became a millionaire in his 40s by getting his money to work for him, and he's gonna show us how you can do the same. He even wrote a book about it called The Millionaire Teacher. And a lot of people think there's a trade-off between saving and spending. They think if they're gonna become strong savers, they won't be able to enjoy life. But in reality, the people that save early get to spend more over a lifetime and work less because of something called, surprise, surprise, compound interest. It compounds terrifically over time and those with discipline to save early, and it doesn't have to be a crippling amount, end up far wealthier and can quit working earlier. And we're gonna be talking about that here on the show. We're also gonna talk about why and when to borrow money and what to spend it on, how you can use time to be wealthier than your rich friends and even if that's on a middle-class income, how banks and financial advisors are not your friends and setting your future up on autopilot because if you're like me, you think a lot of this stuff is friggin' boring and you wanna set it and forget it. So let's learn about that from Andrew Hallam. So today I'm talking with Andrew Hallam. Now tell us exactly what you do because I know you were a teacher and now are, are you an author, writer? Do you still teach? Well, I quit teaching in June. Uh, I was actually teaching at a, a really large international school in Singapore, and I taught personal finance there. But I also wrote a couple of columns, personal finance columns. So one of them is for the Globe and Mail, which is Canada's national newspaper, and another is for a U.S. financial service company called Asset Builder. And what I'm doing now, other than the writing, is traveling around. I get invited to often businesses and international schools where I'll talk to employees about saving and investing their money for the future. Is this a school, is this a college that you taught at that teaches personal finance or are high schoolers finally learning personal finance? It's actually high school. It's the, it's the largest international high school uh, in the world, or at least the full campus was. It was a, a K to 12 school and uh, there were 4,000 kids in there. And so most of the parents were, um, they were pretty type A, they were business backgrounds, highly educated, and, and they pushed for some pretty cool programs. So that's what I was doing there, teaching their kids. So diplomats, kids, business people's kids, that kind of thing. That's great that high schoolers are learning personal finance, because you and I sort of talked off air. We'll get into this in a little bit, but the earlier the better when it comes to this stuff. But we'll get to that in a second. You're a school teacher, of course, so I'm thinking you know, forgive me here, school teacher, personal finance, don't you make, I mean, aren't these people picketing all the time? My mom was a public school teacher. 
I, you know, she didn't drive a Mercedes, let me just put it that way. So how come you're writing about personal finance when you weren't necessarily making a ton of money yourself? Well, I met a guy when I was paying for my, my college education. I came from a pretty, pretty sort of blue collar background. And I was the first in my family to actually end up going to college. So I had to pay for it. And while I was working at one of my summer jobs, I met a mechanic who happened to be a millionaire. Yeah, he was a space shuttle mechanic. You forgot to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> he worked on buses. He worked on, uh, on transit buses. So city buses, basically. And I had a tough time actually believing it, but he sat me down one day and said to me, look, if you learn to master money and, and don't let money master you, it really doesn't matter what you end up doing. Um, as long as you end up with some kind of, you know, if it's a middle-class income of some sorts and you manage your money effectively, you could quite feasibly become a, a millionaire in your 40s. That sounds unbelievable, but you're going to tell us how, and it's not scammy and like, just buy all these certain kinds of plants, right? Invest in diamonds, whatever. It's not going to be something like that, right? It's not scammy at all. Essentially, if you were able or you were able to start young enough, and I did, I started when I was 19, and he said, you know, you got to let money work for you. Don't work necessarily for the money. Let the money work for you as soon as possible. So, so what he got me doing when I was 19 is he said to me, look, you've got to be investing at least $100 a month. And I said, oh, man, I'm paying for my school. That's so much money, right? It was, it was a lot of money. I felt it was a lot of money. And he says, no, no. He says, you're being a knucklehead about this. Think about it. He asked me this question. Look at that vending machine over there. If, if you had to, could you buy like uh, a can of Coke out of that one and then two chocolate bars out of that next one every single day if you had to? Could you do that? Could you pull that off? And like like most guys, I I wasted money on vending machines and I'd buy the odd thing I definitely didn't need. So I said, yeah, I, I could do that. And he says, do the math. That's $100 a month. And I thought... Okay, if there's 31 days in a month, and that's, you know, whatever, $3.33 a day, I guess that is about 100 bucks a month. So, yeah, the, the really great thing is that the, the global markets, if you're patient, reward people quite nicely. I mean, the global stock markets move up and down and sideways, but over time, they do really reward people that are patient. So, just give you an example, the average U.S. stock if you'd bought the average U.S. stock 20 years ago, you would have made nearly 600% on that stock today. To put that in more practical terms, let's assume that you started investing and you were doing 200 a month. So let's talk about, obviously, uh, salaries are higher than when I was 19 years old. So we could say a young person today, okay, 200 a month is $6.45 a day. So if you were able to sort of put that aside and then automatically have $200 a month go into something like uh, the Vanguard S&P 500 index fund, which all that is is product whereby when you purchase it, and you can purchase it automatically, you just set it up so that automatically this 200 bucks comes out of your account. You don't see it, it comes out at the beginning of the month. And if you just had this thing rolling into that and you ended up making the historical return on that money, which is just over 9% per year, you could feasibly save $93,000 over a 39-year period, but the money would have grown to just shy of a million dollars. 
Wow, that's kind of ridiculous. Let that sink in for a second, right? That, yeah, that's kind of, of unbelievable. So putting aside $6.45 a day for 39 years, earning the average return on the U.S. stocks would give you just shy of a million dollars at the end of a 39-year period. Now, what, That's incredible. What's really cool, um, what's really cool, Jordan, is that when I teach personal finance to my students, first of all, a lot of them will say, ah, oh, you know, that's not fun. We want to spend money rather than save our money. And I create this scenario. I say, okay, if you actually start investing earlier, and nobody, I mean, right now, you're never going to be younger than you are right now. So for everybody listening, the great time to start really is, is today. But if you start early, you can actually end up saving less money over a lifetime than somebody else, but end up with more money. So it's one of these things where you can actually over a lifetime spend more and end up wealthier. All right, let's get into that in a second. I mean, you wrote a book called Millionaire Teacher as an international bestseller. So obviously you're not just pulling this out of thin air or any other location. I think that we need to kind of get into, first of all, the trade-off, if it so exists, between saving and spending. Because spending money, always more fun than saving it. You have to kind of reprogram your brain to save money. My dad did a great job with me as a kid, programming me to save money, making me save money, teaching me how to pay myself first, all that stuff that we've talked about on the show before. I now save lots of money. I don't spend it. I also spend lots of money, don't get me wrong. Especially, I've got a girlfriend now. I mean, you can't not. She does a lot of it for me, and I don't mean she's high maintenance. It's just we live together, and I don't care about buying things like toilet paper that she considers necessities. Go figure. Um, so, But I think a lot of people, they think also, well, if I'm a strong saver, I'm going to be one of those like those Chinese ladies that run around San Francisco going through the garbage for tin cans even though they don't need the money. Or people yeah. who, they don't supersize their latte or whatever because that would be a waste of money and their whole life is a matter of finding out ways they can pitch pennies and it's awful. In reality though, it's the people who get up early in the morning, quote unquote, when it comes to saving, right? It's there, And there's math that you and I talked about off air that I think we should really get into because someone who starts 10 years before the next guy has a huge advantage because of compound interest and things like that. So you exactly. can actually, if you start saving early, you can spend more over the, the lifetime and work less. Yeah, that's, the, that's exactly my point. That's exactly my point. You can end up at being wealthier at the end and spending more along the way. It's a win-win. It makes no sense to start later because you're going to have to invest a lot more money and you're going to end up with a lot less money because you're not allowing compound interest to work its magic. What is compound interest? Well, over time, when you have something, an investment that gains, let's say an investment gains 10%, and so feasibly you're turning $10 into $11. Well, if you make another 10% on that $11, you're not just gaining that extra dollar you're gaining that dollar ten, and over years that follow, this money starts to compound to the point where it gets to that point where it starts to very rapidly increase. Uh, it's Albert Einstein who actually said that compound interest is more powerful than the splitting of the atom. 
just pretty darn powerful. It's, it just absolutely compounds over time and, and it grows exponentially. So you start early and you allow this mechanism to take place. You can end up very wealthy on a fairly modest commitment. Yeah, so I want to straighten this out because people are like, oh my God, compound interest is magical. Basically, it means you put money in an account, you get interest on that money that gets added to the balance, the principal of that account, upon which you then continue to earn interest over time. So your $1,000, if it earns 4%, you know, becomes $1,040 the next year, upon which you earn 4% of that. And so that you get this exponential growth. It's literally, it's just very simple math. There are calculators, you can do this on the internet, on the web, and savings accounts have crap interest, but we don't even need to worry about that because a lot of times compounding interest in portfolios for stocks and things like that can be like, what, 18% return and stuff like that? And it varies, but it's a lot more than four. Yeah, if you look at the past 20 years for the US market, it's averaged 9.6% per year. And, and if you play with a, a compound interest calculator, and you could find a pretty cool one online at moneychimp.com, and you can play with, you know, amount saved over X number of years. You plug in the number of years. You plug in the interest rate. You can actually see what that, uh, what that future value would grow to. And just, just playing with it is eye-opening. I actually have an investment that I'm now recalling. Initially, I was the only investor to the Art of Charm, and I put a really long term on it thinking, well, I could just lose this, and then I'll never have to think about it again. But if I have it for long enough, it's going to grow and then eventually it'll make sense to pay it out, dot, 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 let's not worry about it now because we all live on a floor in New York City, right? So now it's time to pay that investment out, and it wasn't a huge investment, but I did the compound interest that the company gave me for that, and I'm like, holy cow, this thing is double. Yeah. And, it's, and it's been like six years, I'm not even, I think it's like five years. It literally doubled, and it wasn't an exorbitant amount of interest. I would have done better if I'd just played the stock market in index funds or something like that. I would have done better. So yeah, but you probably wouldn't have had as much fun. I definitely wouldn't have had as much fun and I also probably be a lawyer or just, you know, anything but a lawyer right now. And so yeah, you're absolutely right, but it's it really looking at the numbers, I was just like, "Oh my god, this is awesome. I need all of my accounts to work this way forever. Now I maybe I don't need to supersize my latte because this is amazing, you know? So it starts to get addicting psychologically. You think, "Well, if that turned into that over that period of time, I want to put as much as I can into this big pot because this is rad. I mean, you feel like you won the lottery. And it's one of those things, too, you know, where you were talking about you, you differentiate the line. You draw a line between your needs and your wants. And many people end up they're blurring that distinction. But all of us like certain amount of luxuries. One thing I don't advocate is, is budgeting. Budgeting is kind of like a diet. Instead, my recommendation is that everybody should just document every penny they spend in some kind of app every day. And what will happen is you sort of start looking at it after a month or two and you'll think, you know, there's an area I spend a lot more than I should and I don't get a lot of pleasure out of that area. So that's an area I could cut back on. This, however, and so for my wife and I, our weakness is massages. We probably ended up having more than a massage a week on average in a typical year. 
we just love it. We just think it's awesome. You go to the spa and have these, this, that's an area where for us, we enjoy that. We're not actually going to cut back on that, but, but there are other things that we've chosen to cut back on. Well, yeah. An example we commonly give is like cable TV. I know somebody who spends like $240 a month on cable and I'm like, man, do you even understand how dumb that is? That is ridiculous. Even if you watch TV all day, you don't need that. Some phone plans are like that too, where you, you hear what somebody's spending on their phone plan and you realize that that's essentially worth a million dollars. If that amount of money were compounded and, and, and they took the difference between that and a cheaper plan and they compounded that over a lifetime every single month, it's worth a million dollars in a lot of cases when you play with that cap, the compound interest calculator. It's actually kind of ludicrous and insane. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And when you think about that, then cutting back on things becomes more fun instead of just really lame, <laughs> right? Because you're looking at future quality of life, which is hard to measure, but then you can kind of check your 401k or whatever, your, your index funds, and you're like, this is really cool. I mean, I'm watching my money grow and I'm not doing anything. Yeah, definitely. So give us an example, though, because right now people are like, yeah, I'm not really sure I get it. I mean, when you and I talked offline, it was kind of like, all right, you start saving when you're 20, your sister starts saving when she's 30, and then da-da-da-da, and you went through this whole thing, and it was pretty powerful. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do, and what, where our conversation went was that, let's say you there's Jordan, and then there's Jordana, you've got a twin sister, and both of you are in the same amount of money during your lifetime. If you start investing, whatever that sum is, if you start investing, let's say you start at age 20, and you start with X number of dollars per month. Well, your twin sister, if she starts six years later than you, she has to invest twice as much money every month just to end up with the same amount of money that you will have. So you just start six years earlier, that's all you've got, just a six year head start, but because of the way that money can compound, she has to have the same amount of money as you. At the end of the day, she has to invest twice as much as you do if she starts six years later. That's it's six years later. Just six years later. If you start at age 20, she starts at age 26. If she wants to be as wealthy as you, she has to put away twice what you put away each month just to be as wealthy as you at the end of the day. That's exciting and depressing at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it's different for everybody, of course, because somebody could be listening to this and they, they're 40 years old and they're saying, oh man, where am I at at this point? Well, ultimately, you're never younger than you are going to be right now. So now's the time to start. Yeah, that, that does make sense. And of course, you know, you think about, man, if I just not wasted all this money on this company that I now run, I would be pretty well off. Oh, wait a minute, maybe not. But it's hard to say, right? It, it makes you think of every time you wasted a dollar and you're like, man, that would have been $3. No regrets. Now. No regrets, Jordan. Yeah, you can't really look at it that <laughs> you, way, right? You can't, you can't do that. We the, both know that. It's not good for us. No. You know? Reverse compound guilt. That's what that is. You've got to look forward. So everybody's got to look forward. Here I am right now. Here's where I'm at. All right, how can I better the situation going forward? So how do we better the situation? I mean, here's one. I'll start, right? I had somebody I used to be in business with that used to say things like, I don't need a 401k, I don't need investments right now, we're gonna be making so much money in five or 10 years, you know, it doesn't even matter, you don't have to invest now, you need that capital now, and blah, 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 and that guy is broke and unemployed right now, because that's a bad financial strategy. Ironically, Wall Street guy. 
Not that uncommon, however, that kind of thinking. No, it's, it's, it's not. And, and I think ultimately a really big problem is, is easy credit. Things like credit cards, which get us buying stuff, seeking that immediate gratification today rather than thinking about tomorrow. And so he's not putting his money in his 401k because he's probably living for the moment as if he's going to die tomorrow. And in all likelihood, he's not. When I look at credit cards, I think, you know, the advice that I have for, for anybody with a credit card is to use the credit card. Like, by all means, allow yourself to, to gain points, credits, air miles, but don't ever let the credit card company make a penny off you. So be the worst credit card customer possible. Be the person they hate by paying off your bill entirely at the end of the month so they don't make any interest off you. You reap the rewards of the points, you know, it's strengthening your credit score, air miles, but they get the raw end of the deal. Ultimately, you want to be the master of the credit card, not the other way around. I see that a lot. I see I hear a lot of people, even my age, I'm 34 now, say, you know, all my cards are maxed out, you know, I'm barely skating by and I'm thinking, oh, wow, that that hurts to hear. Because and that's common. That's common. Does that interest compound against you? Uh, absolutely. See, that's even worse. Absolutely. It's, it's an awful thing. But I think, you know, there are a lot of people in that situation and I don't think that they should get despondent because there are loads of people that are there, that that's where things are at for them at this point. What, what I recommend they do is like with like any goal, if you want to set a, a physical goal, a financial goal, a great thing to do is to write it down. So write down whatever you owe on your credit card and, and stick it somewhere visible. Like maybe it's in your bathroom on the mirror and you, you can see it every day and put a date there whereby you're going to pay that whole sucker off bit by bit, baby steps, you're going to chunk away at that thing and, and drop that to the point where you're in charge of the credit card. The credit card company isn't in charge of you. Perfect. Okay. Even just setting aside that $100 instead of investing it, you're then investing it in essentially financial self-defense. It, it really is not a good idea to invest money in the stock market if you are paying interest on a credit card. And a lot of people do that, Jordan. Well, that's, then stop doing that right now if you're listening and you're doing that. <laughs> if you're doing that, if you're investing money and you have credit card debt, you're paying interest on a credit card, stop. And, and here's the rationale behind it. With a typical credit card, you're paying about 18% a year in interest. And when you're investing in the stock market, you're hoping for somewhere in the region of 9% per year. There will be years, of course, like 2013, where the stock market rose by 33%. There'll be years when the stock market drops. But over a lengthy period of time, you should be earning somewhere around 8 to 9% per year. So if you're actually paying interest on a credit card of 18%, it makes no sense. Pay that off. Don't invest hoping to get a 9% return when you're... When you're bleeding from your b-hole because you're paying interest out there. Yeah, and I just said that. Because you're going out the other way. That's terrible. And I, it's so many people do that because they think, look, my money's growing. Oh, I've got this bill and this looming debt, and it's more than my growth, but I feel good because I'm investing now. 
There's probably not that many people doing it, but guarantee there's somebody out there who is. And even if it's not them investing in stocks or something like that, but they maybe they're like, I need to save this money and not use it to pay off my debt because they're worried about not having cash for a rainy day, the credit probably won't go away, but you need to pay off that debt, even if you have to borrow money at another interest rate that's lower to pay off that card, right? Yeah, and that could be a good strategy too, if you can borrow money at a lower interest rate, for sure, and pay off the high interest loans. So what about things like auto loans and things like that? I mean, borrowing money to buy a depreciating asset kind of falls in the same bucket of bad ideas, right? Yeah, I've, I've always felt that if you're going to borrow money, it's better to borrow money for an appreciating asset. And I would sort of package within the appreciating asset realm, I would say, your education. A college education is an appreciating asset because you're going to make more money by getting that degree. So, okay, I can understand borrowing money to go to college. I can understand borrowing money to put money into a business that you're going to be running. Right. Both are debatably appreciating, right? <laughs> Sure, we we hope, and that's our plan. Real estate, long term, yeah, it makes sense because long term, real estate is an appreciating asset. Again, it can drop in values as we've seen in the United States during the past four or five years. But ultimately speaking, over lengthy periods of time, houses, you name the city, 20, 25 years from now, I don't care, they're going to be worth more. So borrowing money for a house is fine. But what a lot of people will do is they'll borrow money for a car. This makes no sense. A car is a depreciating asset. The moment you drive it off the lot, it loses value. Right. Yeah, of course. You're, you're using up the value that you purchased. And so then if you borrow, you're paying interest on something that becomes less valuable every single month. If you want to grow wealthy, that makes no sense. Sure. Yeah, of course. No, it doesn't make sense at all. And so using money to buy or borrowing money to buy appreciating assets, never depreciating assets, solid. And people who want to know more about this stuff can research it themselves. I'm just kind of like looking for a sampler platter right now where people can look at it and go, where am I making blatant financial mistakes? Because we're not a financial show, right? But I think a lot of guys who are interested in personal growth, self-development, this is the area that they ignore the most. I mean, people are much more likely to write me about their dirty sex life details than they are to be like, I'm in massive debt because I did stupid stuff with my money. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> well, I, I've got close friends and I know everything about their their sordid tales, but then when it comes down to, hey man, you know, we should do this and this and this, oh, I can't and uh, you know, I've got this thing and you're going, wait a minute, what? You have a bankruptcy or you have this and that? What? Why didn't you tell me? And it's like, it's much more embarrassing than pretty much anything else that could be going on in your life because it's a, a culmination of, in large part, your bad judgment, the things you know you shouldn't be doing, coming to bite you in the ass, et cetera, et cetera. All right, back to the show. Yeah, and everybody has a friend too where they look like they're doing really well. And then you, you notice at some point in time the shoe drops, you know? That's exactly um, who I'm talking about, too. The guy has a great car, plays golf all the time, belongs to a country club, has $100 in the bank, asked me for gas money. I thought he was kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's not that uncommon. And I think uh, to a degree, a lot of people, they, they don't think about tomorrow and they buy things. A lot of people buy things to, to impress other people. They'll fit into a certain lifestyle to actually look like they're doing well or look like they're wealthy. What's really interesting is this is something that's quite bizarre, but doctors on aggregate 
aren't that wealthy relative to their income. They're actually, so actually quite the opposite. And what happens with doctors is when they, of course, they often have these big student loans and then they start making great salaries, but they feel like because all the doctors around them are living a certain lifestyle, they feel that they have to start living like a doctor. And so out they get the, the brand new Porsche and the big house on the hill and you know, furnishing it with the expensive Persian carpets. And it's, it's ironic, but they, uh, as a group, they're actually not that wealthy relative to their income. And they get sucked into societal expectations of them. And so a lot of people, I find, do that. It seems like they want other people to be impressed by them. And ultimately, the only way people will be impressed by you is if you care about other people. Sure. Yeah. And that's kind of what our show's about in large part. So we don't have to beat that one to death, of course. But I, I agree. A lot of people get obsessed with the trappings, especially when you got doctor in front of your name. You can't roll up in a Corolla, you know, <laughs> unless you're really, you can, you should, right? If you're really satisfied with yourself and you're very, uh, you know, you're very at peace with that. But yeah, there's plenty of guys out there I know who have multiple vehicles and can't fill them with gasoline. It's really sad. Um, now, what about banks and financial advisors? I mean, should we get a really good financial advisor who can get us into some good products? How does that work? You know, I'm a Wall Street guy, so that's a rhetorical question in a lot of ways. Well, I, I figured that, you know, people that go into certain professions, they'll go into those professions for a reason. So you get people that go into nursing or the fire department or teaching, and generally those are sort of serving professions. People go into finance usually for one reason. They want to make money. And here lies a conflict of interest because the important thing to recognize in 99% of the time, the person at the bank, no matter how friendly they appear to be, they're not your friend. Ultimately, their goal is to make money for the bank. And so here's where it gets a little bit murky because most financial advisors, whether they work for a bank or another kind of financial institution, will, when you go to them for investment advice, get you into products that are profitable for themselves in terms of their commissions or their kickbacks, trailer fees, and profitable for the institution they work for, but less profitable for you. So this becomes a problem. Well, yeah, because their interests are not aligned with yours at all. A huge conflict of interest. Big time. So then, of course, you know, the next question would be, all right, well, how do I get around that? Um, and I did mention a firm that, that I, I strongly recommend for people, and it's a firm called Vanguard. It's headquartered in Pennsylvania, started in 1976 by a guy known in the industry as uh, St. Jack. He worked in the mutual fund industry, in the investment industry, and, and he said, you know, the industry isn't fair. There's a massive conflict of interest. So he founded Vanguard as a nonprofit firm. And so, yes, when you invest with Vanguard and you buy, let's say, an S&P 500 index fund, there are minor costs associated with owning that product that you pay. They're just these little hidden fees that come off. But those fees just go towards basically run just running the company. There are no shareholders of that company. There are no fat cats at the top of the pyramid 
as there are for, say, Fidelity. Fidelity is a great mutual fund company, but the Johnson family is one of the wealthiest families in the United States because they own Fidelity. Nobody owns Vanguard. So because of that, the fees are very, very low. There's no conflict of interest. Everybody there is on salary. Nobody there gets paid in commission. Nobody there gets paid based on the, the size of their the accounts that they end up sort of accumulating from investors. So because of the fees are low, profits tend to be higher for people that invest with this firm. Yeah, so because of compound interest. So even if the fees 1% more, that's, that's a ton of money over time. It's a lot of money over time. Huh, interesting. I got to look at my own accounts now and see if I'm not getting hosed a little bit more than I should. <laughs> well, you mentioned that you were with Fidelity, I think. Right, right? Yeah. yeah. And I, I only buy index funds. And if you're buying index funds with Fidelity, that's a nice thing. Index funds with Fidelity is a little bit like a lost leader. It's kind of like when a supermarket has a sale and they stick like bananas right by the door. And, and often what they'll do is they'll publish it whereby you know the bananas are on special and they're, they're losing money on those bananas, but they want to get you into the door to buy the more expensive products in the supermarket. Right. And with Fidelity's index funds, that's exactly what happens. Their costs on those things are so low um, that they, Fidelity really doesn't make money on them. They would prefer that you choose from their more expensive products. Oh, I get offered all the time. You would. Yeah. yeah you would. But it's, that's fantastic. Sounds like a great account that you've got set up. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's funny because I'll walk in there and then I'll go, oh, you're only doing this? You might want to diversify given the amount of funds that you have in here. Oh, you mean I should take this out of this really well-performing index fund and move it to something where you make lots of money off of me? No, I'm <laughs> good. I think I'll stick with this for now. Here's a check for, for this month's allotment. Yeah, smart man. Yeah, I, I mean, I learned that from my dad. And I, my dad, he constantly, he's a friggin' auto worker. He's retired now and he constantly out, he beats the market. And, the, you know, not, not screwing around with betting on Teslas and stuff like that, but playing it really safe over the long term. And, I mean, that's how he's done it. And, and my dad's kind of like you in that way, where he just saved a ton and invested all of it. And, uh, did pretty well with it, which is really cool. I mean, it's it shows you that the working man can do it and get ahead big time. Oh, and it's a nice feeling when you have when you buy yourself freedom because the best thing you can buy is is your is your time. I mean, every single one of us, in a sense, is terminally ill. We're all going at some point. It might be next month. It might be thirty, forty years down the road. But one of my goals was I wanted to be financially free as early as possible, but enjoy myself along the way. So, so my wife and I. This year, we've just kind of got to that point where we've decided that we're going we're gonna to travel, do a few speaking engagements. But, but for the most part, um, yeah, we are financially free and don't have to work anymore. And that's a, it's an awesome feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for us so far, all right, we've looked at forgetting about budget, right? They don't work. We know that. Documenting things we spend on and then going, oh, that is a huge waste and sort of subtly guiding ourselves away from that. You got that. Paying off your cards in full, even if you have to borrow at a lower interest rate to do it, keeping track of what that is, and like you said, write it down on the bathroom mirror if you have to, so that you see it every day and you can't bury your head in the sand, which a lot of people do. And then once you've paid that off, open something with Vanguard or Fidelity or whatever, get the index funds, S&P 500 index funds, make sure that we put money in there. That's the next step, right? Like, okay, I've got the account in there and I've got $100 in there. How do we make sure that we're feeding that every month so that it can grow? One of the, the easiest ways to do it is to actually set up an 
automatic transfer from your savings or checking account. So you don't actually have to do anything. So let's assume that you figured, all right, I can manage $300 a month, whatever it is. You can set it up with your financial institution, whether it's Fidelity or whether it's Vanguard, so that that $300 at the beginning of the month, you can usually set the date or the time. So it could be you know, fifth of, of every month or the second of every month. But that $300 immediately gets sucked into your investments right away. So you don't really miss it. That's the key. It's to, it's to set it so that it's automatic. So you never miss that money. Right. That goes into the whole sort of pay yourself first. So it, you have the different accounts. And I've talked about this on the show before as well, right? You got the Chase account or whatever and the sub checking accounts and you have the auto transfers. So like every two weeks or pay period or whatever, it takes a thousand bucks out of that check, throws it in another account that you call Vanguard. And then at the end of the month or whenever you want, you go into the Vanguard account, you transfer that into your mutual fund, you buy your mutual fund with that money and you go on with your life. Yeah, or the money goes directly into the mutual fund you've already decided that you want to buy. Right, if you can set that up somehow, which I think it should be relatively easy as well. Very, very easy. Very, very easy. Yeah, they're, in, they're incentivized to figure out an easy way for you to continually give them money every month without you interacting with the process, right? Exactly. Yeah, and they've come to that solution, I would imagine. Yeah, it's nice, and it makes it so easy for you because, as I mentioned, that money comes out, so let's assume you get paid at the first of the month, it's like the first bill payment is to yourself. You know, you're paying yourself first. I mean, this is great. And so by doing this, by cutting back where we find it convenient to do so without the budget, getting rid of our debt, and investing just a little bit in these compounding interest type of, of mutual funds, we can basically kick back a little and, and stop worrying about what's gonna happen in the future because we're gonna have that in large part taken care of. Yeah, your future is on autopilot. That's amazing. Is there anything else that, you know, that I haven't asked you that you want to add to this? Because I wanted to keep this as simple as possible so people could go away and be like, I'm just going to set that up so I don't have to worry about it anymore. Because you know right now, if you don't have a retirement account right now and you're in your 20s or 30s or, you know, older, you have to be thinking about this. And I don't mean you have to be thinking about this. I mean, you're obviously, you're thinking about this and you're going, oh man, yeah, I should do something about that. Oh, uh, I'll have a peanut butter cup instead and not think about it again for a week, right? I mean, that's gotta be going through your head. And there's, there's one thing that a, a lot of people end up actually saying no to free money, which makes no sense at all. Um, workers with 401ks. So many people are familiar with these. You might get paperwork once a year and it's, hey, sign up for the company's 401k. Essentially, what that is, is it's an investment whereby your employer and many employers in the United States offer 401ks, whereby you invest a dollar. In some cases, they chip in an extra dollar or they chip in an extra 50 cents. So you could end up getting a 50% return in your first year on every dollar or even sometimes a 100% return on every dollar that you invest in your company's 401k platform. And then, of course, that money compounds over time. So a lot of people, they don't take advantage of that, Jordan. They, their company will have a nice 401k plan where they'll say, we'll contribute 50 cents for every dollar that you invest. And a lot of people don't even bother investing in that. So in essence, they, they say no to free money, which is crazy. 
Yeah, it it just doesn't make sense. But of course, it comes down to pleasure now, worry about the pain later. And then later on, of course, going, oh, my God, what did I do to myself? Yeah, that's right. So thank you so much, man. This is really good. I think it's really simple, to the point, And I think that's very important because I know a lot of people have been putting this off and now they don't have to anymore because they know what they need to do. Yeah, thanks very much, Jordan. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. And yes, hopefully um, there are people out there listening are going to be saying, you know what, I'm ready to slap that number up on that mirror whereby I can see what my, my visa is. I'm going to start hammering that and then I'm going to start getting money working for me. Well, where can people find more from you? I mean, maybe even grab your books. Yeah, the probably a help, most helpful book might be the first one that I wrote in uh, late 2011. It's called Millionaire Teacher. And you can buy it at many bookstores across the country. Of course, you can buy it uh, on Amazon, Kindle version, or soft copy version. So I think that would be quite helpful. I tried to make that book somewhat entertaining and, uh, and, and simple in terms of its, uh, it, the lessons within it. Excellent. Yeah, and of course, we will be adding that to the show notes. And thank you so much for your time. Excellent work. My pleasure. Thank you, Jordan. Great show, Andrew Hallam, Millionaire Teacher, available in the show notes. It is really interesting when you just do the math. You can save a little bit over time. If you invest it right, it just takes care of itself. And, and that's what I do. A lot of people ask, oh, investing, it's so complicated. I think it's boring as hell. Um, my dad taught me some good habits early on. I bought some mutual funds before I was even in college, threw some ching in there, get some gifts, just let it slide in there. Now I invest in it every month. And I'm quite happy with the results. I don't have to worry about money. I don't. And part of it's because we run a successful business. The other part of it is because even if this all got flushed down the toilet tomorrow, I'll always have that to fall back on. I strongly suggest setting your future up on autopilot as per the instructions on this. And of course, please, you know, I'd love to hear what you guys think. Show feedback and guest suggestions. Again, it's a fanarchy. It's run by you. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone is a good fit for the show, let us know, Jordan at theartofcharm.com. That's me. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Andrew on Twitter. We're going to have his Twitter linked up in the show notes. Bootcamp live program details, bootcamps.theartofcharm.com. Remember, two dots in there. And if you're listening to this but you're not subscribed, for God's sake, subscribe already. You won't miss anything. It'll be great, I promise. iTunes, Stitcher, click subscribe. We also have our iPhone and Android apps available at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone or slash Android Stream it right to your phone. Don't be lazy about it. And special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week. Go out there, get social, leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.